Ever wonder the true power of sports? Well, you come to the right place. Welcome to the Sports for Social Impact podcast. I'm David Thibodeau, and I believe that by exploring the intersection between sport and society, we can better leverage the sport industry for maximum impact. We explore what sports true power is to understand the impacts on and the impacts of sports on society. Join me as we learn how sports can influence important policy areas such as the environment, transportation, education, and so much more. Marco Kasich is the founder and managing director of Fun Life. He works at the intersection of philanthropy, decentralized development, and purposeful business to collaborate with values-driven and empathetic leaders on creating sustainable and impactful solutions that serve the people that they are intended to serve. Fun Life is a community-led not-for-profit delivering direct support to young people in short-term and chronic emergencies in the Philippines. They collaborate with local partners to ensure that the most vulnerable children can reach their full potential through access to purposeful play, quality education, and positive youth mentors. Since its inception in 2015, Fun Life has designed, implemented, and provided oversight on projects that have directly reached over 120,000 young people in conflict, chronic poverty, and internal displaced, uh, internal displacement, and those at risk of human trafficking, and has raised over 3.2 million U.S. dollars in direct bottom-up investments for the hardest-to-reach communities. In this episode, we talk to Marco from Fun Life about his organization, um, you know, how he's built it from the ground up, and so much more. So the news for this episode is about the renaissance of urban swimming. Now, it was an article that I saw that and, and I read it was really interesting, and it's linked in the show notes if you want to go read it. But basically, this article is just talking about how um, the, you know, uh, the, there's a movement, a growing movement of urban swimming happening across the world. You know, it starts off by saying that it was hard for a lot of people to conceive the possibility of swimming in their cities uh, just because of how polluted the waterways were. Um, and it's really interesting how over the last couple of years, people have really started to reclaim those spaces and there's been a lot of pressure on governments to clean up those spaces and create them and and make them into a space for people so it highlights a couple different examples uh firstly it 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 highlights that over the last couple decades uh uh, swiss cities have become pioneers for the urban swimming movement making their rivers and lakes available as natural public spaces within the built environment Uh, in switzerland today it is common to see workers taking a dip in their lunch break or even swimming their way to work in the morning, whilst the rest of the world looks awe, looks on, on in awe. Now, I will say when I visited Switzerland, it was absolutely incredible uh, how really how they were swimming everywhere. You know, I, I was able to go swimming in almost every single city. I brought my swimsuit and my towel everywhere that I went because I knew I would be able to go swimming. And it just made my experience in Switzerland so much more enjoyable and so much more uh, amazing. Um, you know, the water was... Uh, you know, clean. It wasn't always this way. It does say that, you know, there was a lot of pressure from citizens over the, over the last couple of years uh, to, you know, to clean it up. And there was a lot of work needed that, that, that had to be done by, by governments to clean it up. But absolutely beautiful lakes and rivers in Switzerland that, that, you know, people enjoy all the time now. There's also the example of uh, the uh, Plus Pool in New York, in New York City, so they have a giant plus-shaped pool that acts like a giant strainer. So it cleans more than 60,000 gallons of water each day 
um, you know, in that it, it so the, the creators of Plus Pool thinks this, think that it's insane that the island of Manhattan is completely surrounded by water, but the use of this water is basically restricted to just private boats. So this initiative of, of Plus Pool um, is really interesting because they are, uh, you know, they make it accessible by allowing people to swim in the water. And they're also cleaning up the river water at the same time, which is really, really cool. And the last uh, sort of example that they talk about is, is called Pool is Cool. So it's a, a um, it's, it's an initiative in Europe that believes strongly in the contribution of outdoor swimming to quality of life. And they're determined to change Brussels' uh, fate because currently they have no outdoor swimming pools. No, or no outdoor swimming. So every summer, Pool School is creates uh, they create pop up pools and swimming interventions across Brussels to inspire public to inspire the public and raise awareness of the potential for urban swimming in the city. Anyway, I just think it's really cool that we're seeing uh, you know people reclaim these spaces and you know clean up these uh, clean up these these spaces for public use. You know, I can think of a couple places that I've lived in Canada. You know, namely, I'm thinking of Ottawa. Uh, Canada's capital, we have the Rideau Canal that goes right through the city and it is so polluted. You would never get in that water and swim. You know, you can go kayaking on it. You can go canoeing on it, um, paddle boating, you know, paddle boarding, whatever. But, you know, you do not get in that water and swim. But it would be absolutely amazing if we could make that water able to swim. Anyway, so that is the news for this week. I think it's, you know, interesting how we're reimagining our cities and creating spaces for people in you know in absolutely you know different ways but i will leave it i will leave it there for the news for this week welcome today to my guest marco kasich who's the founder and managing director of fun life uh, a non-profit based in the philippines marco thank you so much for joining me today um i'm really excited to have you on and you know Start, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, great to be here. Thank you. Thank you, David. Um, yeah, so my name is Marco Kasich, as you said. Uh, I am based here in the Philippines, Cebu, uh, and I'm also the director for Fund Life International. It's a not-for-profit using sport for social impact, working mostly with very marginalized youth, uh, working with marginalized and vulnerable girls, and really, our focus is to empower young people and give them new opportunities and perspectives using the power of sport that ordinarily they wouldn't have given sort of some of their socioeconomic background. Um, and yeah, I've been doing that for over a decade. Fund Life has been around for, for nine years, but we started the projects back in 2012. That was the first time I visited the Philippines. And that was really sort of, I guess, uh, an eye-opening experience for me because it was the first time I saw how powerful sport was at bridging some of these huge problems that you know we have in society and that can be amplified in some some developing countries like the Philippines, where the marginalized youth really don't have the same you know equal access to opportunity and education. So sport was really a unique opportunity for us to try and do something and and somehow after a decade we're still here so yeah we're just uh seeing how we can evolve and and, and happy obviously now to be back after the the pandemic yeah absolutely and yeah that's, it's incredible the you know as you say the the true power of sport and 
how we can change that conversation a little bit uh, to to you know bring that impact, bring that purpose led, um, you know, purpose led, purpose driven organizations into the sport world and into um, you know the, the conversation is large at, at large in in the in the development sector. So Fun Life has you know a whole bunch of different programs. Um, I believe your flagship program is called the Football for Life Academy. Um, you know, tell us about you know that one or different or different programs that you run. Um, any and all of them, we'd love to hear. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess the origins of Fund Life we almost started by accident. Like I said, we we did our first sort of community led project uh, when I first came here on a on a business engagement. So I had no experience of NGOs, sport to, for development. I, I I didn't say in the intro, but I grew up in the UK. So for me, playing sport was always sort of aimed to be competitive, and it was never sort of about unity as as a as much as it is about sort of rivalry and division and and you know trying to win um and coming to the philippines for the first time i i really saw extreme inequality and and i got involved with some football communities just to play i was an active player in the uk um and then i got led into this uh, organization which was doing amazing things in one of the worst slums in manila and one of the things that you notice as a as a foreign visitor in the philippines is that sometimes the local people they get very shy around you. Sometimes they feel intimidated just because they have this sort of sense that foreigners are coming from a different place where they have sort of maybe more opportunities. And when I visited this NGO, I realized that these young people, you know, eight to 14, they had such immense confidence. They had so many sort of different perspectives on life, the way they interacted with me. And all of this was possible because of sports. It just gave them this sense of belonging, this sense of equality, that it's really sort of a level playing field, not just physically and sort of literally, but also metaphorically for life. Um, so basically, that's that's sort of how Fund Life sort of started. We wanted to help this local NGO. And then Football for Life uh, actually was a project that um, I was in Manila in 2013 when there was a huge typhoon, Typhoon Haiyan, Yolanda. And so initially I had set up meetings to get funding for this local NGO, because again, this is sort of going off topic, but one of the things working in this space for the last decade I noticed was there's so many amazing community organizations using sports and other tools, but there's just no funding for them. And it's really sort of a big problem within the NGO sector. But so this was the problem that we were trying to solve. Um, and as I mentioned, this big typhoon happened and it just so happened that some meetings that we had lined up with UNICEF were cancelled because of this emergency. Um, and so UNICEF came back to us after two weeks and they said, look, there's absolutely no funding available for Manila. All of our attention is going into these um, typhoon hit disasters that, that happened. And that's Tacloban Leyte. It's, it's on the eastern side of the Philippines. And they said, if you have a proposal where you could use sports to help some of these children, then maybe we could work with you. And so Football for Life, to answer your question, was really sort of a sports program aimed at restoring normalcy, giving children access to play after this horrific um, typhoon, which was the strongest in the world at the time. Um, and so the project was essentially using sports as a way to restore childhood, make children sort of distracted from losing their houses, from potentially being displaced, in some cases losing family members. 
Um, and, and that's really how it started. Um, and, and I can go into more detail, but that's how the program had its origins. And then over the last eight or nine years that we've been running it, it's really evolved from disaster response into keeping children safe, keeping them in school, providing opportunities through scholarships. Um, so so th this has basically been a natural organic evolution of the program. Mm -hmm. It's incredible how, you know, something, I don't want to say something so good can come out of such a tragedy, right? Like fun life and the work that you're doing is incredible. And, and, you know, how you're helping people um, is, is really amazing, but, you know, it's, it started in such tragedy and, and, you know, it's, you know, I guess it's sad in a way that it had, that that had to happen, you know, at first, but um, yeah, no, it's, it's really incredible that the work that's being done that, you know, that, that came out of that and, and since, and, and everything you've been able to accomplish with all your other programs. Um, and so you talked a little bit about gender equality in, in, in the intro. So how, how do you talk, or how does that come into play um, through your programs and, and why is it important to fund life? Yeah, it's, it's, it's hugely important for us just because when we started, we really, and I guess one of the advantages that I have, because I didn't grow up in the Philippines, there's obviously a lot of, um, there's a lot of need here in terms of which community we help or what kind of focus we have. And we just looked at the data. And if you look at sort of the research, it shows that adolescent girls, they're so much more disproportionately disadvantaged if they grow up in poverty. And so you have so many sort of potential risks for them. You have teenage pregnancy, which means they would drop out of school. You have the economic pressures of the family, which means often they're pulled out because they have to provide uh, income to support the family who's living in poverty. So essentially, they're the first victims of poverty. And we noticed when we were doing our programs in the first couple of years, uh, some of the data that we were gathering showed that girls were intimidated. They didn't want to play with boys because they felt, especially with football, um, nobody had ever taught them that before. So we created actually a separate program called Girls Community League, which was aimed at supporting girls and giving them more of a safe space and inviting them. And that program was, as, as you mentioned, focused on gender equality. So a big focus of our work is actually training and recruiting female coaches just because it's easier then for those coaches to connect with with the girls and again just go through with them and and remove some of these barriers that they had and and often what we found is once girls join the retention is much higher they don't drop off they're more committed they take advantages of the other components of the program which is education and training and mentorship so it's been incredibly successful and um yeah it's one of our sort of leading programs so football for life has sort of branched out into this girls community league which is a, essentially a schools-based futsal league for girls it also has a boys component but you know for this purpose it's really aimed at promoting it more to to young adolescent girls um and unfortunately it got derailed because of the pandemic and because of covid and so now we're we're starting to relaunch it in some of the schools where it was active and also going into new schools now. Right. So I'd imagine that there's, you know, I guess cultural norms and cultural, um, you know, I guess barriers for, you know, women and girls to participating in sport in the Philippines. So how do you, do you, do you find those hard to break down? 
to get girls involved in your programs or like how do you how do you break down those 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 norms and barriers yeah I, actually if i'm if i'm completely honest i think if you look at the philippines in terms of gender equity in terms of access to sports for girls it's actually sort of very high especially if you look at that sort of pay to play model if you go to a normal sort of sports festival especially football festivals in the philippines you have a huge amount of female participation so i think what we've noticed is that if you have the opportunity and you come from sort of uh, access to this opportunity if you're a female you actually have a lot of access and and actually here in the philippines the the opportunities for women if you look at their political system if you look at sort of they've had female presidents it's actually not that divisive in terms of a lack of access i think where there is a distinct lack of access is for girls from poverty and from marginalized communities just because again here uh, the poverty rate is sort of one of the highest in the region and often what happens is if if young people obviously girls also go to public school the teachers just don't have the resources the families don't have the resources to put them into active sports programs so often when fund life does this work it's the first time that girls have access to any kind of structured or regular sports um and again what we've noticed is once once we've done the research once you can remove these initial barriers of shyness intimidation feeling as if they don't deserve these opportunities then the benefits are huge because again with with girls we find that they take the programs more seriously they listen to the coaches and they just take advantage uh, of the extra benefits whereas sometimes with the boys they just go there to have fun which is great but often it, it's not the most conducive environment for for learning and getting the most out of it mm -hmm. yeah interesting how you know boys and girls can you know can experience the situation differently but just based on their uh you know the, the the access to those spaces um that are you know created um you know by you know i guess yeah you know there are different circumstances in life but yeah so that's interesting i didn't quite know the, the i guess the the gender equality context of the Philippines, um, but that's, that's that's interesting to know that it's you know that, that you find it quite equal, just ex, you know ex, obviously except uh, you know from from the poverty um, um, angle. So you know, Fun Life obviously has a very youth centric focus as well, right? Like it's all about youth. It's all about you know education, quality education. You know, helping people achieve their full selves. Um, and so I also saw that on your website you talked about um you know youth leaders and youth mentors and it talked about the importance of putting youth first um and at the center of decision making so why was this an important aspect for for fun life like i i'm really interested to know you know your, your thoughts on youth leadership and, and youth involvement in sport and especially in like i guess like the you know the sport for development nonprofit sector because um you know, I, you know, I, I think, you know, youth from Canada, youth from, you know, United Kingdom can have a lot to learn from youth from, you know, Phil from the Philippines, just in terms of, uh, you know, how do you sport in different ways and, and, you know, in, in more you know, thoughtful and purpose-driven ways, but yeah, so I, I'm interested to hear your thoughts on, on youth leadership. Yeah, I, I, I think again, from us, it's, it's been an organic journey in terms of promoting youth. When, when we started Fund Life, I was only 23, 24. And so, so I sort of come from that place of sort of seeing some opportunities. And again, 
you know, Fund Life is, I would say, a very disruptive NGO in the way we started, in the way that we're also trying to change the way traditional development happens. Because again, I think the great thing with sports is it really promotes opportunity. It doesn't promote this idea of sort of dependency. Uh, sport is the great equalizer, as as you know, anyone who plays or watches sport knows. It's once you get onto that field, you know, it really you get out of it what you put in. So it's a great life teacher for hard work. And again, often with young people, if they're coming from a certain background, just having that key sort of work ethic, having that discipline sometimes is hard if they don't have positive role models. So we almost use sports as experiential learning. And I think with youth leadership, it, it's just a no-brainer for us. If we can find amazing young people who have that passion, who have that determination, and who have that sort of track record of doing something from their community, if they're coming from, you know, not very privileged communities, they're the best teachers that we can use. You know, we find that it's very ineffective and a, and a real sort of bad use of resources to hire someone who's not from a community or perhaps who's older because there's a disconnect. I think this happens in, you know, everywhere you go in every country, the bigger the gap between the learners and the educators, the more of a sort of cultural disconnect there is. And, and also when we talk about some of these key issues that we deal with, like teenage pregnancy, um, I think, especially in the Philippines, it's still traditionally a conservative country. Young people feel shy. They don't want to talk about, you know, adolescent issues and sexual reproductive health with a social worker who's maybe 50 or 60. They prefer having a discussion with someone from their peer group. And again, so youth leadership, I think it's so vital and it can it can solve so many challenges that traditional NGOs don't. Um, and I wish we had more opportunities. But again, unfortunately, as as we mentioned before, the, the sort of we started that the traditional NGO model typically doesn't give a lot of opportunities to young people. It's mm -hmm. often led by sort of experienced leaders, which are great. But when you're talking about tackling some of these maybe taboo subjects or just creating disruptive models, I think we've had great success in just letting youth lead and not just talking about it because we know NGOs are great at, you know, singing the singing the sort of the hymn sheet of saying, oh, we should let youth lead. And then it's ironic. You look at the stage and it's full of, you know, 50 year old plus leaders and they're talking about letting youth lead. And, and ironically, there is no youth on stage. So I also don't like the hypocrisy of traditional NGOs where they use youth as a sort of um I don't know. I I I prefer to be action led, and and that's the one thing with Fund Life. You know, we don't just talk about youth leaders. We're 80, 90 percent led by youth. All of our staff are under 35. The operational staff are mostly under 25. And again, we can just speak from our experience, and it's been pretty successful for us. Yeah, that's that's amazing. I I know, I know just from experience. Sometimes you know, youth is very tokenize and I, I talked about this before on the podcast sort of like youth youth and sport and development and and how we can empower youth to to take up more space and and you know use their voice to create change um and i yeah i, I totally I, I remember one time i was at a i was listening to a, to a panel about youth engagement and the whole panel was you know 
40 plus, right? Yeah. Like not, and I'm like, why are there no youth on this panel? You know, I, I can understand, you know, someone who's been working in, you know, youth engagement for a long time. Absolutely. You know, they have definitely have experiences to share, but, you know, let's hear from a young person to, on how they would like to be engaged, what they believe is, you know, uh, would be valuable to them and, 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 and how they think that they could be used best in organizations. So I think, you know, big kudos to, to Fun Life for, you know, really, you know, really taking that to, you know, really talk, really taking that to heart and, you know, really, really thinking about youth leadership in a, in a more wholesome and, you know, I guess like whole way that, that throughout your organization, I, I think that's really, that's really awesome to, to see that that's happening in a nonprofit and in a, in a sport for development nonprofit, uh, nonetheless. Um, but yeah, so that, that's, that's really amazing. I don't know if, um, you have any, like other, you know, could could share like specific tasks that young people share or, or I guess do in the organization. Like what, like you know, what do what do the youth mentors and youth leaders do in their day to day life? Yeah, we 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 have I guess different roles. So so initially we have youth mentors. Uh, we sometimes work with trainee teachers. So again, we don't want to like I said, we're we're disruptive, but we're trying to help be part of the solution. We're not here just to talk about the existing problems. So for example, we have a program for trainee public school teachers who come into our organization and they, they become youth mentors. So again, these young people, they haven't started formally teaching, but they're already connecting with people. And then hopefully they will take that into the classroom. Then we have young coaches who sometimes have uh, graduated from becoming a, from being a player in the program. Then when they finish school, then they become a trainee coach. So again, it's it's also people that have been through the program and, and um, that's kind of the sports side of it. And then also when we have operational staff, whether it's sort of stakeholder engagement manager, whether it's social media marketing, um, operations managers, project managers, we also try and keep them relatively young if we can within reason. Um, just again, we want to build internally we don't want to hire people who are not from the community. So Fund Life, I should say, is 100% locally sort of driven. All of our staff, I'm not involved in any of the operations. Um, it's really supposed to be sort of a way for the young people within those communities that we operate to sort of, and I don't mean this in a negative way, but to remove the excuses because, you know, we we, we as humans are all sort of, we have an easy way to say, oh, I can't do that because of X, Y, Z. And so with young people who grew up in these very marginalized communities, they have a lot of excuses, legitimate excuses. And so we try and remove that by saying, look, we know your life is difficult, but look at your coach. They went through the same journey as you went on, follow the steps, and you can also achieve whatever it is you want to achieve. And so again, we're not promoting just sports we're really promoting young people to follow their passions. Um, and, and again, we have some examples of young players that have gone on to college, who have got scholarships, who have gone on to do cutlinary stuff and chefs and uh, F&B. So especially for the girls, we do a lot of hospitality training. Um, and again, it's a bit of a transition for us because during COVID for, for two and a half years, there was no school. There was no face-to-face -face classes. So So for us... We also went back to sort of putting sport, I guess, on the back burner while we're trying to make sure, you know, young people still are in education. 
Um, so now we're trying to sort of merge those two things. How can we use sports to build up these core skills that I mentioned, discipline, hard work, communication, confidence, and then connecting those skills with tangible sort of employment opportunities? Because again, this isn't sort of part of your question, but I think maybe one of the deficiencies, I guess, of sport for social impact is once you have these young people that you develop using sports, where do you take those skills? Because that's often sort of sometimes the missing part, especially we've noticed with youth organizations, the programs end when the youth gets to 16 or to 18. And then it's kind of like, well, they have all this talent or they have all these skills, but what do they do with them? So that's also been a question that we've been trying to sort of answer through some of our programming to make sure that we can take these young people and actually make sure they go to somewhere dignified employment that's that's essentially our goal as an organization mm -hmm. that's that's a very interesting point that you bring up um i know that i experienced not not quite in the same context in that uh but i know i experienced something similar when you know when i i was a competitive swimmer for a long time but when i you know graduated from university and suddenly i was no longer a swimmer and no longer on a swim team i was like well now what? Like, who am I? Uh, where do I go? Where do, what do I do? So, uh, yeah, not not quite the you know same, but um, yeah, I, I think a lot of athletes and a lot of people who you know came through sport programs, whether as a, you know who went on you know in competitive or or more recreational program, I can think can re relate to that relate to that sentiment a lot. Um, but yeah, so I I guess I, and I, I that kind of leads into my next question as well. Um, for you, you know, what are some of the challenges that you find working in sport for development? I I, I think, um, you know, the biggest challenge is that we we want to grow. We want to increase our impact because we have the data that, that demonstrates every time we go into a community and we're allowed to do our work, uh, we have amazing impact. But I think in the bigger sort of NGO space, there is still this sort of sense that, sport is just about kids running around and smiling and i think there's a lack of sort of there's a lack of funding fundamentally in sport for development uh, and often that funding is misdirected i would also say sometimes it goes to the ngos based on their prestige rather than their capabilities so i think there needs to be a lot more sort of work done through conventional sports um in terms of getting some of that funding from you know, the elite level down to the grassroots. Um, and, and again, this is sort of more a political issue because again, everything is, it's complicated. And I've been in this space for 10 years, so I know it's not that simple, but I think we just need to have more of these discussions and again, bring more funders to the table so they can actually understand the holistic impact of sports because it's not it's nothing to do from our side about creating competitive athletes. Mm -hmm. It's just creating sort of this young people that have these core competencies, which they can basically equip themselves with to escape poverty, because ultimately that's that's what we're trying to do. We're trying to end intergenerational poverty. And then if you look at the amount of funding that goes into ending poverty and how ineffective it is, and it has been over the last 30, 40 years, you know, mm -hmm. I think there needs to be more accountability, but I'm very outspoken on this subject. So in terms of that's the sort of, from my viewpoint, that's the biggest challenge. Yeah. Um, 
and the operational stuff of course there's day-to-day challenges but you know that's part of the job yeah no absolutely that's that's the message that we have heard time and time again on this podcast that you know one people just don't, you know people don't really know what sports for social impact you know sports for development and peace is um you know it's it's still a it's a it's still a very niche subject a niche topic that hasn't really branched out into the wider into wider society and and yeah it, you know funding once again definitely heard that before um i think it's a big gap you know just in terms of what you know government policy government funding um you know even and and you know i guess corporate funding and, and as well you know it's definitely big um yeah a, a big gap in the in the sector that you know that that i i don't know if it's necessarily i think I think there's a lot of talk going on about sports for, for uh, sports for development. Um, so it's just not quite reaching out into the wider world yet. And I'm not sure how exactly we can do that, but I think slowly we're getting there, but um, I guess it, that's most of the questions that I had for you, Marco. So thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Um, but I would just like to ask if you have um, any last messages for everybody listening. Thank you also, David. And 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 just to say, I mean, I, I don't want to be negative in terms of the funding. I think that there's in the last sort of five or ten years, there has been some amazing trends. I mean, I look at Common Goal because we use football, soccer as sort of our main tool. What Common Goal has achieved in the last five or six years in terms of moving the needle has been phenomenal uh, in terms of sort of engaging at that elite level. And then you look at the sort of big sort of the big uh, administrative organizations like UEFA, like FIFA, they've started developing their own foundations, which is going to the grassroots. So I think there's more and more sort of players coming in. But of course, like you said, corporates, I think that's that's the big advantage of getting them to work with more grassroots organizations rather than going to these safe, traditional big INGOs. Um, and in terms of sort of closing thoughts, no, I mean, I, I would just say, you know, just anyone that sort of wants to learn more about the space, please do. I think, you know, there's there's amazing organizations all around the world um, and volunteer. I think we've had some amazing sort of volunteers come from the UK, from Europe, from America, just to get involved and see it for yourselves, because often, you know, it's the best it's the best teacher uh, to sort of get out there Um and yeah, just just stay active. I think that's been the big message that we've been saying here in the Philippines because two and a half years, the pandemic has really sort of turned the lights off in many areas. So hopefully now that the pandemic, I hope, is behind us, we can really go back and, and start sort of building on that work that we had done in the first seven or eight years. Yeah, absolutely. Totally, totally agree with that message. Well, Marco, thank you once again for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. And I think, um, you know, people will definitely uh, take some interesting thoughts and interesting uh, conversations away from this, from this discussion with you. Thank you so much, David. Pleasure speaking with you. And yeah, hopefully we'll stay, we'll stay connected and see each other again sometime soon. Thank you once again to Marco for coming on the podcast to talk about fun life. Now, my key takeaway from this episode is that I guess that's a, I find it really interesting their ability to put you centric, not just at their target audience, right? So their target audience are youth. They're trying to help youth in the Philippines, but they're also putting youth 
throughout their organization, staff, decision-making, you know, youth are in leadership roles, helping guide this organization to further their impact, to further their reach, to have a, uh, you know, to have a bigger and more impactful legacy on the communities in the Philippines. I think this is really important uh, for other nonprofits, NGOs, and especially sport for development organizations. Um, you know, there's a huge space for youth to take leadership roles and be involved in these organizations at a much, uh, at a much bigger uh, rate than what they currently are. And I, and I think this is a really great model for others to, to, to use and to follow. Uh, I know that we've talked about it before on the podcast, uh, but youth engagement is often tokenized. And, you know, so it's really important that youth are not just being uh, put, you know, put there as, as um, you know, as a representation of their generation without actually any power or any real voice or leverage within the organization. You know, their voices have to be valued. Their voices have to um, be used to actually help further the conversation and further the mission of that organization. So I think it's really awesome that Fun Life is really taking this to heart. So that is it from me today. Thank you so much for listening and we will talk with you next time.